Today, dear listeners, we're going to be meeting a group of people I first met in the summer of 2020. Yes, I was one of the lucky few that got to make it to a summer school, not online, but in person, that year that we would now rather not speak of. I had discovered the Centre for the History of Knowledge on Twitter a few months before. The Centre, LUCK for short, was established in March 2020 by Johan Östling at the University of Lund in the south of Sweden. The Centre has a goal to open up space for people to look beyond the often narrow contours of what we assume to be knowledge in the long history of our societies. And I was not disappointed when I met this group of people in person. They were pushing the limits of what previous historians had defined as knowledge, and they were using approaches from several different sub-disciplines of history and other social sciences. So I'm really excited for you to hear all about their vision and individual research projects. You shall see that there are many parallels with the history of economics. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Okay, men då tror jag, jag tror vi börjar. So I'm um, joined here with the director of the center, Johan Östling, and the two deputy directors, Anna Nilsson-Hammer and um, David Larsson Heidenblad, as well as a PhD student at the center, Evelina Kaltresk. So thank you so much for being here. Um, so I'm going to ask each one of you to present yourselves. Yes, thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you for having us. Yes, my name is Johan Östling, and I'm a professor of history at Lund University and uh, the director of the Lund Center for the History of Knowledge. And I mean, broadly, I have an interest in the history of knowledge, its tradition, its methods, its, its approaches. But I also have an interest in, in modern European history, in particular, the history of the university. And I'm actually just now launching a new project on the Europeanization processes of the of the universities uh, since the 1980s. So that is very much uh, contemporary history. Wonderful. Let's have Anna go next. Yes, thank you very much, Maria. Uh, so my name is Anna Nilsson Hammer. I'm a researcher, uh, early modernist mostly, uh, dealing with right now with a, a project concerning aristocratic households in early modern uh, Sweden, uh, looking at them as um, um, workplaces, as and at the employees in such organization, and how knowledge is circulated and transferred between uh, employees in the organization and within the organization itself. Uh, so I'm very interested in questions of um, both of everyday history and work uh, and how knowledge plays into this uh, relationship, uh, but also how bureaucracies and administration forms in this kind of setting and um, uh, how power relations uh, actually form the uh, transmission of knowledge as well. Uh, so that's what I do. Thank you, Anna. Let's have David next. Yeah, thank you so much, Maria. I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is David Larsson Heidenblad, and I'm an associate professor here at uh, Lund University. And um, I got a Professor Two Stilling at uh, Oslo Met as well. Uh, so my research uh, interests are primarily these days. Uh, I'm looking at the popularization of stock saving. Uh, I'm looking at the financialization of um, yeah, mainly Sweden and Scandinavia, but how certain economic practices and knowledge is 
uh, move from being a sort of a, a concern for a small number of people, certain kind of economic elites, to become something that uh, every man more or less has to sort of grapple with. And uh, these processes I look into as something human made, that there are like organizations and actors actually embrace markets and make things happen. And looking at these things from an historical lens and history of knowledge lens is, uh, yeah, basically what I'm doing. Wonderful, thanks. Um, and last but not least, Evelina. Thank you very much, Maria. Uh, yes, my name is Evelina Kaltisk and I am a PhD student at, in, at the, the History Department of Lund University and I'm also affiliated to the LUC <laughs> Center. And um, I'm mainly interested in the history of childhood and youth, but in different ways. Uh, and right now I'm writing my dissertation on the development of use of children, youth and entrepreneurship in Sweden since 1980, focusing on the educational organization Ung Företagsamhet as a knowledge actor. So I'm basically looking at the process um, which has made uh, entrepreneurial knowledge seen as relevant enough to be written into the Swedish curricula and something that uh, should be promoted um, in different ways in, in schools. So entrepreneurial knowledge. Uh, becoming something that is relevant to children and youth of all you know levels yeah so already there we have two great examples about how this how your center is interesting for us as historians of economics right quite clear um parallels there so right now i'd like to go get down um to business what is the history of knowledge well, perhaps I should start. I've written quite a few introductory texts to this field and, and tried to, to the la almost uh, the last decade, since 2014, 15, I've tried to, to, to formulate for myself and for others what this field could mean. And I think it's fair to say that on the one hand, we have a long tradition in historical scholarship to study knowledge in various forms. On the other hand, this is as a field quite new, it belongs to the 21st century. And it really started in the German speaking area when it was called Wissensgeschichte, that is the history of knowledge. That could be an alternative to the very established history of science, Wissenschaftsgeschichte. And that developed in, in Berlin and in Zurich uh, during the first decade of the, of the 21st century. And then I would say since well, the mid-2010s, uh, it has grown and expanded and been ex established in, in various other parts of the world, including in the Nordic countries, in, in Germany, in, in um, Australia, in the Netherlands, not least, and also increasingly in the English-speaking world, with new journals devoted to the history of knowledge, new conferences, new, new projects, new centers, new positions, new introductory books, and everything that really has to do with, with uh, establishing a field. So that is a kind of uh, historiographical background. Uh, and perhaps some of you can, can continue to say something about the content. What, what are we studying when we are doing history of knowledge? Yeah, I was also thinking about the fact that we, we all come from uh, we come from the historical sciences and, and from history and have been very influenced by cultural history, I think, as uh, being PhD students and so on, and our departments were uh, as well. And uh, I think that the history of knowledge has, um, in this context, also popped up a bit uh, after uh, cultural history became sort of the normal kind of history that you, uh, you write. 
Uh, so uh, following uh, like history of emotions, history of materiality and so on, then then history of knowledge also becomes a, a trend, I think, in that in that setting where we should uh, take the cultural history into account as a foundation for this. So there are different routes into uh, the history of knowledge. Uh, I think we have uh, we have had many discussions about this. What what is it really, and uh, uh, how much is it an institutional setting where we gather researchers interested in one phenomena or in questions concerning one very general and um, um, uh, general phenomena that concerns all people and all uh, branches of human life um, and. Uh, how how can we qualify this and how can we specialize uh, in, in different uh, ways of talking about knowledge uh, so i think we have we all have very different in a way we all have different solutions to uh, to what the history of knowledge uh, is but we're all interested in this uh, question of what knowledge does in society and in everyday life and to individuals and how knowledge is used uh, how knowledge is uh, um, used as a resource or as uh, uh, compete uh, competitively or um, what meaning it has in different contexts. So I think this um, perspective is uh, something that we have in common. And that's why we can all speak across uh, the, the boundaries of the chronological boundaries as well. <laughs> we can go, we, we discuss uh, 20th century historians can can discuss with early modernists concerning phenomena, uh, concern, concerning knowledge, the knowledge phenomena, and how these um, um, the conditions have changed um, for the use and uh, production and circulation of knowledge. Uh, the history of knowledge, I think, is is like a perspective you put on various phenomenon in the past where you look at knowledge as a social and historical phenomenon not that you try to find like the essence of what knowledge is and always will be but sort of what people in certain circumstances have thought of as knowledge or used as knowledge and in that sense like this perspective is a productive way to enter into various fields uh, but the bigger issue is of course then okay what does the, this all add up to and we have a, a guest research program here at Luck, and we met yesterday uh, a week ago, uh, speaking about uh, yeah the history of knowledge and like these guest researchers like uh, very very different things, uh, different chronologies, different places, but when you get make it together, then you get you can pose questions about how various forms of knowledge in certain societies relate to each other. Like if you do this history of science thing, then it's very easy to get focused on like the universities and certain kind of elites or you can look at how knowledge produced at universities how it circulates outside in in society but like there are a lot of other things uh, in people's lives that they think of as knowledge or use as knowledge who does not have these like direct relationship for example like personal finance for example where like what is studied in universities and the models people use that's that's certainly not the only knowledge authority in that field and there are other fields which are like uh, not typically studied by intellectual historians or historians of science um, so and historians of knowledge think that like various forms of knowledge are interested in how they interrelate and how they sort of function together and in that sense through that lens you can often see society or past societies in, in, in a new light. 
uh, for me, the history of knowledge is, you know, both a research field, but also a platform for research focusing on the study of knowledge in the past in different ways, and also taking this inspiration from different fields which have in different ways been concerned with the study of knowledge. And there are many ways that you could study knowledge in the past, but the main point is that knowledge is seen as a historical phenomenon dependent on context, both temporal and cultural. Uh, and also on a medium. So knowledge is not something static, but it changes with time and through mediation and so on. So I guess that's the foundation as I see it. Yuan? Yes, another way of describing what we have been doing is to introduce the three books that we have published, the three edited volumes. We have also published other books, uh, more specific, uh, directed to certain areas and certain topics. But we have published three general uh, books on the history of knowledge in order to explore this field and also hopefully develop it. And the first one was called Circulation of Knowledge, published in 2018. And that was a way of, of trying to... to, to understand what this very popular phenomenon of popular concept of, of uh, circulation, which has been discussed very much within the field of history of science, but also broadly uh, in the history of knowledge, what, what that could mean. And we gathered some 12 or 14 scholars to explore that and also wrote an introduction. And I think that has so far been our, our most popular book. And then a couple of years later in 2020, we gathered other scholars uh, to publish the second volume, which was called Forms of Knowledge. And that was a way of, of broaden the, the understanding of, of what knowledge could mean and also try to investigate various forms of knowledge, not only scientific or academic knowledge, but also, for example, tacit knowledge, practical knowledge, indigenous knowledge. And now we are completing uh, uh, the third volume, uh, knowledge actors and Maria you are part of that writing a chapter and then we are uh, trying to uh, see what it could mean if we put actors uh, agents of knowledge at the very center of attention at the same time broadening it and not only look at intellectuals or, or scientists but but many other forms of, of, of actors and all these volumes are, are published uh, uh, online, open access as well. The third volume will be published later this year, uh, and they will be also that will also be freely available. So if you have an interest in in how we have been working, I think that is a very good start. Yeah, and I'll put links up to those volumes um, on our blog. Um, I think this is a good um, time to to go to the next question, which is very related to this, and you're starting to answer that question, which is this quite natural follow-up question, why, uh, which I'm sure you've heard lots of, like, why do we need yet another field? Think about history of science, which you've mentioned a few times, but there's also history of social science. And there's also a really, really strong tradition of history of ideas, especially in Sweden. Um, um, why why do you see this need to, 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 to use this new field? We have been thinking about this quite a lot, uh, not least the last uh, year, when David and I have been writing a kind of introductory book, a textbook for, for Cambridge University Press that will be published uh, next year called The History of Knowledge. And uh, we have discussed that with, with other colleagues as well. And when we then tried to describe the field, History of Knowledge, we said that 
or our conclusion was that we should start with culture history, just like Anna told us before, that that is really our background. That was the paradigm which we uh, were part of when we started to work with this. Um, but apart from, from culture history, uh, which is really a fun fundamental for us, uh, we have tried to also see other sources of inspiration. And one of them is, of course, history of science uh, in its modern contemporary fashion including what in Sweden and the Scandinavian countries are included in that field, um, which also is, for example, science and technology studies and certain forms of history of ideas. And uh, we are drawing inspiration from, from, from these fields. And secondly, history of education is another way. Um, and I think that, uh, for example, Evelina can, can tell us more about how that can be applied, but that is really also a dynamic field, not often uh, separated from the history of science in a curious way, uh, but that is really uh, uh, an important field of study and has its own conferences, its own uh, infrastructures, its own research lines. But we draw inspiration from that as well and try to include that into the history of knowledge. And thirdly, I would say that media history in a broad sense, including the history of information, the history of the book, uh, is a third uh, source of inspiration that we also try to integrate into the history of knowledge. So that is, I would say, a kind of general background uh, with the culture history uh, and then a couple of other fields that we can draw inspiration from in terms of method, theories, approaches, questions, to also approach knowledge as, as a very dynamic field of, of study in the past. Yes, I totally agree with uh, this very good description that Joan has given, that it's uh, really a field where we where we have always thought of it as integrating different um, uh, different kind of tradi traditions and enabling a discussion uh, between uh, different um, institutional settings. Uh, the history of ideas is an institutional setting in a different way than the history of knowledge is in Sweden. So, uh, so we gather researchers from different different fields to discuss uh, a topic we have in common. And I think the, my, the main the easy answer to why we need new fields is that we need to keep talking to each other. <laughs> we need to uh, continue a discussion and we can't just stay in the boxes that were predefined by uh, our predecessors. We have to, to evolve, even if it means that we take up questions that have been discussed before and it's it always comes back to this. What is, a, what is new? We already discussed this. Well, we didn't. <laughs> So we need to we need to discuss again and from different perspectives and in different ways. And I, I'm sure there is something new to it, but not necessarily everything. But we, we need to keep discussing these questions. And there is obviously in time a need to discuss questions of knowledge uh, for very different reasons. But it is a phenomenon that we can gather around for many for many reasons. And it, it is an interesting possibility that we have a field where we can discuss uh, issues across uh, periodical divides uh, and actually focus on this uh, this question, um, uh, the topic at hand. So that's the function it builds, really, and that's why we need it, I think. Yeah, a home um, 
<clears throat> for lots of different kinds of people. And perhaps at least if, if I were to answer this question, um, it would be to give a home to people that didn't feel at home elsewhere as well. <laughs> Evelina? Yes, I agree with that too, because of course there's many different fields as we heard that, that in some ways have dealt with knowledge in the past and been interested in and in discussing it. Uh, but they're always, since they have their specific context and, and some sort of delimitations of their own subjects in tradition wise or other things, for example, educational history often is connected to some sort of educational system uh, in a way, but there's some actors or maybe some forms of knowledge that aren't usually discussed. And it's the same when it comes to scientific knowledge. Then you have, you know, what is science question uh, that comes into hand and some kinds of knowledge maybe can't be described as science, but still can be discussed as knowledge and explored as such. So... I guess, uh, you know, the history of knowledge opens up for, you know, a broader discussion on knowledge in different kinds and different contexts uh, that doesn't limit you to to the uh, the traditions and, and uh, limits of one certain subject, but you can find inspirations and, you know, uh, open up new questions and new ways of exploring knowledge uh, with uh, the resources and some of the tools from uh, that has been developed in these different subjects before um, and open up for interdisciplinary discussions. So that, uh, that is what I find very interesting with the field at least. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us on to the last question. Um, how do you think history of knowledge could help historians of economics? So you, you know, speak directly to my listeners here. I think uh, history of knowledge is beneficial to anyone who who wishes to um, understand the 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 meaning of of a certain kind of knowledge and what how a certain kind of knowledge is used. And I mean, this is not least the case for economics and financial thought. It's uh, it's a, it's a very it's a field where um, empirically, I mean, there is an interconnection between. Uh, both everyday practices and uh, economic theories, and this uh, uh, this connectivity is very very interesting. And to see how that turns into practices and to into behaviors and into uh, um, uh, and and, and um, different kinds of um, action. Uh, and I think there uh, there is a point in discussing discussing the knowledge aspect of this uh, and how knowledge is transformed across. Um, uh, between um, from theory into practice, for instance. Um, so I think there is uh, there might be inspiration there for historians of uh, of economics uh, if they're interested in this these kinds of questions. Um, and um, it makes us interested in, in the history of economics, not <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, perhaps the like the the lens of looking at knowledge rather than perhaps economists or mm. books or models yes. which is something yes. we do quite a lot yeah yes exactly that's a good point david you had something to say yeah i can i can up in um uh, in the, the fields i i'm for the last couple of years i've been working in a large uh, research program on uh, neoliberalism in the nordics and like neoliberalism is a big field uh, in intellectual history i mean there's so much written close readings of Hayek, of Friedman, of von Mises, etc. And 
and also of course of their relationship to various politicians in like uh, the Mirovsky Pleve, this the road from Mont Pelerin, these kind of things where you look at like very influential uh, elite actors, though not necessarily the people know that they are as influential as they are, but like these kind of networks, they're very studied. Uh, one of our guest researchers here, Thomas Roos, um, he has had an has a project about um, savings banks and savings banks associations and how you sort of educate young children into financial subjects. And if you compare these two things, like these, this is a very big social phenomenon. We find these kind of savings banks all over the Western world. Uh, and, and their reach socially is very, very big um, and over a very long period of time. But there is not an abundance of histories written about, for example, that kind of everyday banking history, for example. But from a history of knowledge perspective, where sort of people, where do people learn how to sort of save, invest, loan, etc. Then the banks and their, for example, their commercials, their advertising, that's obviously interesting subjects. And I know mainly about sort of the Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon world. And sure, for example, stock saving, which I know most of, there are a number of studies of how you have sort of tried this kind of knowledge has circulated in society, but not that many. Uh, you find like a, a single researcher you can read all the books. But from a history of knowledge perspective, you start to, to pose questions about uh, whose economic knowledge and uh, whose financial knowledge. I mean, is Wall Street important or is like, mutual funds in rural Kentucky, are they important? I mean, it's a diff they're different uh, things which comes into focus. If you look at, for example, everyday financial knowledge in the 1980s Sweden, or if you look at uh, Nobel Prize winners and the ceremonies around that, I mean, both these things are interesting and they are interconnected. Uh, but I think there's a lot of sort of semi-hidden very important economic actors who uh, uh, a history knowledge perspective can help us to sort of see them and explore them and, and look into that. Uh, so that is also if I want to add to like what the history knowledge can give, it is like it, it opens up certain new research visits. I think both my project, current project and Evelina's current project, these are, these are un, un, largely unstudied phenomenon, like Junior Achievement, the big organization, which uh, the American, which Evelina has uh, looking at the Swedish branch. I mean, that's a global phenomenon, but it's understudied historically. There are some studies, but it is on what they are doing right now. So more from a sociological contemporary perspective, but these are historical phenomenon and they developed in certain contexts and they were shifted. And it's, I would say, obviously interesting to anyone who wants to understand the contemporary condition. Uh, and you cannot only study the economists and World Bank and the Economic Forum in Davos. You have to look other places as well because there are other places are important. And I think that kind of social history impulse in history of knowledge is very useful for a lot of uh, different disciplines. And also that I think you can also look at what, what role economists and the history of economic thoughts plays in society. Uh, so that you don't study only economists, but you can also study, for example, environmental knowledge or um, legal knowledge. There are very many different forms of knowledge which are important if you want to understand how economic knowledge functions in a society. Uh, so in that sense, I think also the history of knowledge has an integrative perspective where 
various branches of social important and political important knowledge can you can see how they interact because there's no society where it's just one pool of knowledge which dictates everything it, it it hasn't worked like that before and it doesn't work like that now yeah going back to your earlier point of the fact that it's it's uh, lots of these different kinds of disciplines are being mixed into one discipline yeah like we said, so the history of knowledge open up for, you know, meeting points between different disciplines. And I think my research subject is an example of that, since I have influence from, from different disciplines. And I, like I said earlier, my main research interest is in the history of childhood and youth, which might not come across as something that goes into the history of economics, but there is meeting points when we, when we focus on knowledge. And, and um, I think also... The history of knowledge focus on you know the broader scope and different actors that might not be you know the focus in other disciplines is interesting here as well so Ungföretagsamhet uh, is the Swedish uh, version of Junior Achievement which is a global organization which is working uh, to teach children and youth about economics and entrepreneurship and enterprise basically and it was already founded in 1919 in the US, but it's read in at different paces in history, which is also very interesting, actually. And when it came to Sweden in 1980, it was only in a handful of countries, but today it's over a hundred countries throughout the world who has different uh, different regional versions then of this organization. And in Sweden, uh, the main program, which is also I think the main program in most countries. Uh, is uh, when you get to start a mini company that they get to run for a year uh, as part of, to get to know a bit about enterprise and how to run how to run a business. And when it came to Sweden, it was actually quite uh, controversial because there were these big debates about the economic system in Sweden, whether they were going to have this wage earner funds which would be collective uh, capital savings uh, in, in Sweden, uh, which the Social Democrats were, you know, uh, motioning to, to uh, get introduced, and they actually did. Uh, but then the, uh, the Employers Association uh, especially reacted very, uh, very intensely to this and went out in these huge demonstrations. And uh, this organization working towards teaching children about enterprise was seen as a part of this movement, this uh, in political and economical influences from America, which was way more uh, market liberal than Sweden at this time. Uh, but of course, uh, there were influences towards this direction at the time. Uh, but so from that state where it was quite controversial, it came to grew just continued growing uh, throughout the years. And uh, in 2011, entrepreneurship was set as one of the main goals of Swedish schools at uh, all levels. Entrepreneurship so is supposed to run as a red thread throughout education in Sweden from when you start school to university level, basically. Uh, and when... Uh, they did some research on what entrepreneurship in a school setting was supposed to be like or was considered at a point in 2008. So before the new curricula was uh, finished, uh, then at the, the high school level, then Ungfertagsamhet was almost seen as synonymous with entrepreneurship in an educational setting. 
So they had a quite a big influence in what was considered entrepreneurial education and knowledge at the time, but they haven't been studied in that way. The entrepreneurial uh, pedagogy or learning, entrepreneurial learning has been studied within pedagogics, but uh, hasn't really received a lot of attention. I don't think junior achievement either has received a lot of attention as, uh, you know, considering the influence that they might have for uh, what entrepreneurial knowledge is considered. And also considering that this has become something that is, uh, you know, uh, something that everyone is supposed to be exposed to at school. Um, it's relevant. And this ties into, you know, the spread of economic ideas from, from the theoretical thinkers of economy, of course, but it is a different way and shifting focus towards knowledge can open up these new ventures, I guess, in research. Okay, so um, so in, in my current project, together with, with uh, Svante Norheim, who's a historian here in uh, Dunde as well, uh, we are studying... Um, uh, aristocratic household and estate organizations and uh and much is concerning actually the the uh, subjects of these organizations or the workers there and how they interact with um with the counter with the owner and uh and a lot of this has to do of course with the um um with um uh the uh the, the financial situation of the estates. Uh, so it's uh, we're, we're very much diving into accounts, account books, and uh, payrolls, and uh, all the negotiations concerning uh, the payment of wages uh, in uh, in this context. One of our conclusions is actually what because we have been looking at. Um, at petitions from employees to uh, the master of estates or the owners, uh, which is where it is very clear that this is a, they are um, uh, very involved in um, negotiations surrounding their wages. Uh, so it is very much a history of how uh, employers, what, what employees, what kind of knowledge they had about their own situation, about uh, the depths that the um, the deferred wages that had not been paid uh, to them uh, because they were not paid, <laughs> surprise, uh, uh, properly. Um, but they had out the the count had outstanding debts to his employees, and the employees used these debts to negotiate their own positions and to um, uh, from uh, counting on and knowing what what. Uh, what he owed them, how much he had paid them, if if he had paid them smaller sums, what uh, food and clothing, for instance, represented, and what kind of uh, uh, in value. Uh, they were very, seemed to have been very skilled at calculating value. Um, so it's very much a history of economic negotiations uh, and the employees actually seeing that the employees in these organizations had vast knowledge, uh, both perhaps through reading or keeping of their own accounts, but also through rumors, uh, talk going around in the organization, and circulation of knowledge at play, in, in place, uh, but also knowledge across generations, which is quite surprising, actually, that there are, for instance, women 
negotiating the inheritance from their uh, their uh, fathers or grandfathers who used to work for the count, and now they they are negotiating with the count for uh, for uh, advantages uh, which are based on the fact that he didn't pay their grandfather the debts that he owed them. So this is very much a, a system of financial transactions that are not there, but should have been there, <laughs> but that cause a circulation of knowledge uh, in this everyday setting uh, where they are forced to interact in a very restricted system in a way where they're quite powerless in a way, but they still have the knowledge of these transactions to use uh, in, in negotiations. Yeah, also really fantastic example. Um, David, did you want to add something? Yeah, maybe I could say something about the chapter I've written together with a colleague, Charlotte Nilsson, uh, who is also in this uh, Knowledge Actors volume, which Johan mentioned earlier. So there we are studying, um, it's a very contemporary phenomenon, but personal finance bloggers uh, and um, one such, and podcasters. <laughs> so there's, there's a, this couple in Sweden called uh, uh, Jan and Caroline, and Caroline Bolmeson, and they are, have a site called uh, Rika Tillsammans, Rich Together. And it's the most popular sort of popular finance forum. Uh, they have like hundreds of episodes. There's a, a vast amount of people who, who listen to these people and discuss on their message boards, etc. And these these things, uh, from a history of knowledge perspective, this is obviously sort of some kind of financial knowledge in circulation. Uh, and but. I, these are not the typical actors who historians of are looking into, um, not in contemporary setting, but also not in the past. These kind of sort of lay, lay financial advices, lay, lay capitalists, some something like that. Uh, and I mean, I I know some studies of like sociologists, like Daniel Friedman, uh, studied this freedom from work, where you study like there are these like pop financial gurus like um, Robert Kiyosaki, which rich dad poor dad, who is like a global success story like i think millions of copies sold it's everywhere uh, and it's a very very u.s book for example uh, definitely sort of adjusted to a u.s market uh, where capitalists function in a certain way but these kind of popular finance books they also circulate all over the world so like friedman for example studies he does like field work in argentina uh, in like i think this is around 2007 2008 or something like that uh, where this book is a smashing success. But like Argentina, like if you just go some few years back, then they have this like national banking crisis where people cannot take out money from the banks. So it's like a very different system from, from the US system. And this how these kind of, uh, these kind of sort of financial advice literature, how it circulates globally uh, and socially. I think that is a very interesting like history of knowledge phenomenon, a kind of, empirical theme which a history of knowledge lens uh, helps us see and then we can we have to investigate it because of course there are precursors to this i mean you find find things in the past as well there's one of these books i usually take up is there's uh, an american called george clayson who has a book called the richest man in babylon and that is like a gathering of bank propaganda from the 1920s so the book came out in i think 1926 or something like that and it's it is has been in print ever since it's selling like uh, steadily selling copies like because it's like a basic kind of abc financial advice literature and it was translated to sweden swedish in 2011 i think uh, 
And there's not a lot of books from the 1920s who for the first time get translated in 2010s. And, I, and these are things which sort of, to me, this is things I've discovered since asking these questions like, uh, what is knowledge to people? Uh, and who do people listen to? Who do you take advice from? And you start from that, as that question. Then you might end up in universities, but you also might end up in a podcast. Yes, uh, you have brought up interesting examples here on how to combine history of education, history of everyday life, uh, media history, for example. But I also think it's it's important to stress the societal dimension of, of the history of knowledge um, in various ways. And at the moment, we have a position here at LAC, a research position advertised on the history of knowledge societies. And we deliberately chose to have that in, in the plural, uh, knowledge societies, uh, because we think that each society is in one way a knowledge society. But one way uh, or one, one big advantage is that you can compare different societal settings um, throughout history by applying a history of knowledge perspective. You compare can compare, for example, what were the conditions for the circulation and production of knowledge in the 17th century and in the 21st century. And I think that is a good way of, of also zooming out uh, since when we are speaking about the knowledge society and perhaps when economic historians are speaking about the knowledge society, that is mainly something that is the post-industrial condition from the 1970s onwards. And there have been many studies on, on Daniel Bell and, and Peter Drucker and how that has transformed uh, the political and, and economic landscape after uh, the 1970s. And I think that is very good way of, of studying things, but you can also use this knowledge societies as, as a concept to, to zoom out and think about what was typical for this period and what kind of similarities could we see if we compare with other periods in, in time. And that is a way that I think that historians of knowledge could help um, to, to broaden the discussion by bringing in this kind of, of plural knowledges in the plural and, and also societies in the plural. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I wanted to say to, to, to David's point too about these books about, you know, how to get rich off the stock market, for example. I mean, that also has a reflection of what's actually going on in the economy, you know, shrinking job markets, uh, lack of job stability. So that has like real, it's a reflection on what's actually going on in the economy as well. Thank you so much. This has been um, a really wonderful conversation. I just want to do, I just want to ask one last thing to wrap up. If anybody is interested in seeing the work you do and getting in touch with you a little bit more, what what are the kinds of avenues that they can, um, what kind of avenues are there for them to get in touch with you? Do you have any kinds of programs in your center? Yes, we definitely do. We have a web website, newhistoryofknowledge.com, uh, which is our digital platform. And we also use Facebook and Twitter connected to that uh, website, where we also have information on, on upcoming events, seminars, our international fellowship program, our summer school, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's is the first place to look at, I think. And then we have, as I mentioned previously, a number of publications, not least our uh, tr trilogy on the history of, of knowledge, and they are all open access. And then we have, of course, uh, individual 
papers and and articles on the, on to, on specific subjects which you can find through our website and through our personal homepage at Lund University. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, ja, tack så jättemycket. Jag ska lämna er nu för ni har möte. Ja, ja, ja. Bra. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter cetrusnparabus and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.